Welcome to Securing America with me, Frank Afton, the program that's a kind of owner's manual for protecting the country we love against all enemies, foreign and domestic, to the glory of God and his kingdom. A very special treat in store for all of you today. We're going to visit with one of the most courageous medical practitioners of our time, a man who has, in fact, written a book about the very subject, the courage to face COVID-19, subtitled Preventing Hospitalization and Death While Battling the Biopharmaceutical Complex. His name is Dr. Peter McCullough. His co-author is a great friend of this program as well, John Leake. We're so delighted to have you with us, Peter. Um, I am on your feed, and it seems just about every day you are demonstrating that courage again by elevating issues you know, warning of new developments and uh, and revelations about COVID, about the vaccines, about the the misconduct, really, of that, well, as you call it, biopharmaceutical complex. And occasionally you have a little bit of good news for us, too, where people are actually getting better as a result, mm -hmm. not least of the kinds of treatments you've been prescribing from the get-go. Welcome back to Securing America, my friend. It's good to see you, sir. Thank you. I wanted to start by just asking you, um, speaking of COVID-19 and all that we've been through, not least at the hands of the medical authorities here and abroad, what are we to make of what they're now brooding, which is something they call disease X? Disease X is a, is a concept. It's not a real virus, but, uh, you know, people in this space, like Peter Daszak at Eco Health Alliance, and he's one of the co-conspirators in the creation of SARS-CoV-2, he's been writing about disease X for years. In fact, when the COVID pandemic broke the news, Daszak knew about the entire time because he was in on the creation of SARS-CoV-2. He probably wrote that, listen, this is disease X. This is what we've been waiting for. Now we're seeing all kinds of uh, telegraphing from the World Health Organization, the World Economic Forum, CEPI, the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness and Innovation, just has a piece out now about ending a disease X pandemic, which they all say will be 20 times more lethal than COVID. Guess what? With a vaccine. So what we're seeing is the same type of telegraphing with COVID. Now with disease X, it's probably going to be another uh, gain of function virus, respiratory virus from a bio lab. Yeah, something that's been engineered for the purpose. You know, you mentioned the World Health Organization, the World Economic Forum, and this group, CEPI. Uh, a common denominator in all three of those, of course, is Bill Gates, a man who boasts right. about having gotten 20 times the return on the investment he made in what? The vaccine for COVID-19. Uh, could he possibly be expecting to get uh, a similar kind of return on investment for a vaccine for disease X, do you think? The biopharmaceutical complex uh, is heavily driven by Bill Gates, and it is profit-driven. These are not-for-profit NGOs that are profit-driven. Gates, uh, his investment in BioNTech, perfectly timed, uh, reaped tremendous profits, now being reinvested at, you know, in these vaccine incubators like CEPI. It's a vaccine-only strategy because he knows the returns are so high. Yeah. This is one of the world's richest men, so for heaven's sakes, he doesn't need more money, but he is profiteering off of this big time for sure. And and when you talk a little bit about, um, uh, again, some of these lessons that we've learned from COVID, uh, especially uh, when you say something was perfectly timed, uh, it does seem it's important to me to mention that it seemed perfectly planned as well. Yeah. Is that possible with respect to disease X, do you think? Yeah. Well, when we go back and listen to the lectures of Ralph Barrick for years, he basically was telegraphing a, a SARS-CoV-2 you know, engineered virus. He was at the center of it. Uh, it. It was, you know, had the potential to infect the entire world. And remember, Barrick's work was always side by side in creating a vaccine. Even in his 2015, 2016 papers, Nature Medicine Proceedings and National Academy of Sciences, in that was the creation of a what he called a Wuhan Institute of Virology one SARS-CoV uh, virus. You know, it was you know primordial SARS-CoV two. He never released the code of this 
to the uh, public data banks, which he's supposed to. It's federally funded research because he knows the code closely or exactly matches the original Wuhan strain. But in these papers, they're developing vaccines at the same time. Well, in fact, wasn't that part of the pretext for what Ralph Barrick and, and mm-hmm. Peter Daszak, these are these are two Americans who were working with Tony Fauci um, with the Wuhan Institute of Virology, right. transferring technology, transferring money, right. taxpayer money. Um, wasn't it, at least when they sort of copped to it, uh, supposed to be about developing the disease so that they could develop the virus, uh, the, rather the vaccine that would counter the disease. Weren't those two always inextricably intertwined? Finally, Anthony Fauci admitted to exactly that. The creation of the virus was for the purposes of creating a vaccine that was going to be used globally. And that just happened in the House. Uh, I testified just a few days after Fauci, also in the House of Representatives. I was on January 12th, 2024. He was a few days ahead of time. But that was an important admission. The creation of the virus was for the purposes of mass vaccination. So just to flash forward, if uh, these guys are telegraphing, and in some cases it's it's the same people, certainly the World Health Organization, the World Economic Forum, if they're telegraphing that there is some new disease that's 20 times as lethal as the one that they inflicted upon us previously, um, and they're evidently uh, advertising that there will be a vaccine for it. Um, in your professional judgment, Dr. Peter McCullough, is it possible that they're all about generating the disease that they're warning of and that uh, inflicting it upon us will be needed to get them to sell their uh, product? That's precisely the business plan of CEPI. The business plan in 2017 says there will be a series of pandemics and there will be only answer mass vaccination. I can tell you as a doctor, vaccines can't end pandemics. The illness is too highly prevalent. What ends pandemics is early treatment. So having people survive the illness and then natural immunity, the virus will burn itself out. Vaccination extends pandemics because it encourages the virus and the other organisms to mutate and become resistant. But it does have the advantage of selling more vaccines, doesn't it? Right. Uh, And Peter, again, this uh, wonderful book, The Courage to Face COVID-19, is is really required reading. It's the playbook. (laughs) As as you and and John lay it out, your sort of detective work ferreting out the kind of information you've just shared with us, but it's also a predictor quite possibly, of, of what uh, these characters have in mind for us. And it, it raises a question that I, I am very anxious to get your current thinking on, uh, and that is a, an agency that was directly involved in misleading us about the nature of that virus, misdirecting us in terms of the appropriate response to it, uh, specifically adopting the China model as it's been called, instead of the kind of early treatment that you understood immediately was required, uh, is now being proposed to be put on steroids, is the way I think of it. This would be the World Health Organization. And and its advisory role, bad as that was performed, is now going to be transformed into a kind of compulsory dictatorial yeah. role with respect to public health policy. What could possibly go wrong with that, sir? It's a disaster. You know, Tedros was out this week uh, stating he's disappointed with the lack of uh, global enthusiasm for this. The uh, Pandemic Treaty Alliance, International Health Regulations, you're right, convert the WHO from being an advisor to now being an operational, in a sense, dictator on public health response. And listen, it's not just COVID. We've had COVID, but there's been a World Health Organization declared a monkeypox emergency. Now there's a huge biopharmaceutical complex attack on RSV with all these new products without adequate safety and testing. And now WHO climate crisis and you see farmers. Hold the thought. Hold the thought. We have to come back. We're out of time. We'll be right back with more with Dr. Peter McCullough. Stay tuned.
This is Frank Afting with the Secure Freedom Minute. An important new study exposes Team Biden's reckless disregard for reality in the existential war being waged by Sharia supremacists against our ally Israel and ultimately against us and the rest of Judeo-Christian civilization. It cites, for example, a claim by the faction, Biden insists can be relied upon to run post-war Gaza and a new Palestinian state, that last year, quote, more than 1,500 military operations against the Israeli occupation were led by the Fatah movement members and the Palestinian authorities' security forces, unquote. When the president sanctioned four Israeli West Bank settlers yesterday for violence against Palestinians and their supporters, however, he made no mention of such operations by the very PA paramilitaries the U.S. is training and arming. By so doing, he is inviting more of those jihadist attacks and very possibly an October 7th-style massacre in Judea and Samaria. This is Frank Afti. We're back, and we are visiting with Dr. Peter McCullough, who I very rudely had to interrupt in mid-sentence as he was talking about one of our most important topics here at Securing America, and that would be this idea, embraced, of course, by the World Health Organization and the United Nations, but also the World Economic Forum, also the European Union, also Bill Gates, Big Pharma, and not least, of course, the Biden administration. That would be creating a new, well, they call it global governance mechanism, whereby the World Health Organization would be given, in the person of its director general, Tedros Cabrasis, the authority to declare a public health emergency of international concern and to dictate what must be done in response to it by individual nations. Uh, And Peter McCullough, you were describing... Um, that these public health emergencies, as Tedros Cabrasis sees it, uh, need not have anything to do with pandemics or even really public health per se. You were, and I'm sorry to have had to interrupt you there, but talk a bit about this idea, which he's publicly declared, um, that climate change is such a public health emergency. Yeah, the WHO in this new power grab is positioned to actually declare a variety of emergencies and they don't have to be infectious disease. They could be environmental, in this case, climate. But think about this. The WHO perceives a climate emergency. They have a tremendous influence over the European Commission, which is kind of the executor of what goes on in the EU Commission. And then the decision is there's there's too many farms and there's too much uh, production of uh, of nitrogen, other uh, products from farm animals. So farming has to be curtailed. And now, you know, you can see how this can basically cascade to a, to a disaster. Yeah. And uh, our government, as I said, is all in on this. And I think it's absolutely predictable that they will welcome the kind of uh, dictates that are handed down by Tedros to do exactly the same here, not just to farms, but to, you know, 15-minute cities and to internal combustion engines and all manner of other things, to say nothing of having a public health emergency involving gun violence, uh, which could lead to direction from Tedros that uh, our guns must be confiscated, which, let's face it, the Biden administration would welcome too. Peter, this is so important that we're talking about this now, because as you know, in just four months, uh, actually three, I guess now, um, we're going to see all of this somehow um, approved unless we stop it by our government and others uh, under the banner of the World Health Assembly in meeting in Geneva. So your voice needs desperately to be heard and, and amplified on this, and we're happy to have a chance to do it with you. I did want to turn to another topic, if I could quickly with you, sir, and that is we have a potential for a vastly expanded universe of diseases, uh, partly because one of the things that this pandemic accord or the international health regulation amendments would do is uh, require sharing of information about so-called novel diseases that have been discovered. Um, Do you share my concern that that could well turn out to be a vehicle for vastly proliferating what amount to biological weapons? 
the WHO's interest, uh, in, you know, the biopharmaceutical co complex driving biolabs is a great worldwide concern. This would be like driving the proliferation of nuclear, you know, arms that these biolabs creating organisms that can infect everybody in the world and, and kill people indiscriminately. Uh, and to have these go on and actually be heavily promoted by the biopharmaceutical complex is greatly concerning. The WHO is not proposing safety standards or limitations. Uh, and, and, you know, in the United States, we have a ban on federal funding of biolabs, but the biolabs are not banned at all from existing. And if they're funded outside the NIH, uh, you know, it's game on. So as I've testified all over uh, the country, I've told, you know, lawmakers, listen, do an inventory of the gain of function biolabs you have in your state and consider some state regulations. At least in the United States, we can fall back on states. But I'm greatly worried that the WHO is encouraging this as opposed to making the world more safe. Yeah. You know, one of my other pet peeves at the moment, uh, pet peeves, pet panic uh, factors, I guess, is that among the bio labs that are now operating in this country um, are probably Chinese ones that have no resemblance to any of the safety features of a level four facility. For example, we saw one out in Reedley, California, as you know, discovered by basically accident. We have no idea how many others there might be here, but they certainly raised the real concern that uh, bio warfare perhaps is... Uh, facilitated by some of these Chinese young men, military age, coming across our border unaccompanied, looking a lot like People's Liberation Army personnel um, might be in the business of spreading about. Um, one other piece of this that I did want to talk with you about, Peter, is um, the idea of facilitating um, a kind of... Uh, well, digital tyranny, our, our friend Reggie Littlejohn calls it a digital gulag, by another angle of attack in this um, uh, consortium effort to build out the World Health Organization's power, namely giving everybody on the planet a digital identity card, which would not only aggregate all of their personal medical histories, but also presumably other data that the powers that be are interested in, maybe their social media posts, their income, where they work, where they live, and so on. Uh, again, I have to ask the question, sir, from the perspective of a medical professional whose best medical advice was routinely suppressed by the World Health Organization and its friends, uh, what could go wrong with that kind of uh, data uh, aggregation and uh, perhaps it's a framework for the operationalization of propaganda and you know in right front and center is misinformation disinformation anti-science conspiracy theorists those are all propaganda terms and uh, you know they they were used extensively uh, during the Nazi uh, regime in World War two so so when one could be accused of misinformation we, we, when we're simply discussing data, then that moves that person into the digital gulag. And you can see social credit scores plummeting, restriction of activities. You know, it would be a way to silence, you know, freedom of speech easily. I, I'm, I think this is a great threat to humanity. Well, and, and you're not just you know, speculating on what might happen. You've had hard personal experience with this. Uh, just give us a quick pricey on uh, the efforts to suppress you uh, professionally, as well as in terms of your scientific research and analysis. Look what's happening. The WHO has said the greatest threat to humanity is not heart disease, cancer, or diabetes. They said it's misinformation. And so does the American Board of Internal Medicine, who's formerly accused me of spreading misinformation. They, they, they you know, have no basis in fact. All of my work, I have one of the most published people in COVID-19. My publications are peer-reviewed. I stick to the data. I cite the sources of information. And you know, on appeal, uh, they have basically just uh, indefinitely suspended my case. There's no due process. There's clear substantive uh, uh, issues at stake here. And I'm being unfairly treated as others in my circles. This uh, 
misinformation agendas has actually cost people's lives. There's no such thing as misinformation. There simply are scientific observations. It's a rapidly evolving novel virus, new pandemic, and uh, no one holds the truth. There simply are scientific observations, multiple points of view, have to quickly discuss, make decisions. Early treatment was the right way to go and to get people through the illness, not wait in lockdown and then be faced with unsafe, ineffective vaccines. Peter McCullough, we are out of time long before we are out of topics. I so appreciate your courage, your leadership, and your clarity on all of these points. Um, you are not a purveyor of misinformation. You are a courageous purveyor of the truth. God bless you, and come back to us with updates on all of this, if you would, sir, soon. Stay well. Night after night, in cities across the country, black-garbed assailants clash with police in the streets, smash windows, and throw Molotov cocktails in an effort to destroy police stations, federal courthouses, and local businesses, all in the name of anti-fascism. Most Americans are now, sadly, all too aware of the movement known as Antifa. But where did they come from? What do they want? And how do we stop their campaign of violent mayhem? The Center for Security Policy Press is proud to present Unmasking Antifa, Five Perspectives on a Growing Threat, this new book looks at the history, ideology, organization, finances, and strategy of Antifa and provides an in-depth analysis for law enforcement officers, policymakers, and the general public. From street fighting tactics of the Black Bloc to fundraising by prominent left-wing foundations, Unmasking Antifa is the go-to guide to understand this elusive and dangerous threat. Get your copy of Unmasking Antifa, Five Perspectives on a Growing Threat at Amazon.com. We're back, and I'm always delighted to be able to say we are joined by Jonathan Emord. He is one of the first order constitutional scholars of our time, a man who is an attorney by training, but has written a profoundly important book about um, what happens if our constitution goes over the side at the hands of authoritarians is the title of the book and it charts what has happened since the mid 19th century sorry <coughs> i knew that was coming on let me do that again welcome back and it's always a pleasure to be able to say welcome to our next guest his name is jonathan emord he is a well, constitutional expert, an attorney by training, the author of a really important book on what happens to, well, a republic like ours if our enemies have their way. It's entitled The Authoritarians, and it traces the history of this phenomenon from, I guess, its heyday in the early, uh, the mid-19th uh, century to the moment. Um, one might argue today is the heyday, in fact. Um, we'll talk about one of the expressions of that, um, the violation of our borders, in fact, the destruction of our southern border uh, by none other than the president of the United States, Joe Biden. Um, it's so good to have you back, Jonathan, at a time such as this, uh, when that topic is uh, front and center. Um, you are, of course, running for the uh, Senate in the Commonwealth of Virginia. And uh, so this is almost certainly top of your mind for that, among other reasons, isn't it? It certainly is. Wow. Talk a little bit about, if you would, Jonathan, the constitutional, some say crisis that is upon us now with Texas countermanding what the Biden administration is insisting it do to leave the border open and uh, it appears defying a Supreme Court interim ruling that suggests it should do that. So the Texas National Guard, uh, the National Guard called up by Governor Abbott, um, have placed a razor wire, Constantino wire, all across the 49 acres of a park adjacent to the border that has been used by illegals uh, consistently to come in in huge numbers into Eagle Pass. Um, that uh, then be turned into a constitutional crisis when the President of the United States amazingly uh, ordered that there be a stand down that these individuals leave and that the feds pull in with National Guard called by the president. 
um, and uh, created a, a real crisis where there was a possibility of confrontation between federal authorities and state authorities. Uh, the president has not uh, proceeded beyond the threats uh, thus far and um, assembly of some of the, of uh, some uh, border patrol uh, outside of the park. They were actually removed from the park by the National Guard, called up by uh, Abbott, as well as the State Guard, which now occupy that area and are intent on protecting it and ensuring that the governor's will be done. Um, so this constitution... Let me just say, I, I think it's fair to observe that it's obviously the will of the vast majority of people of Texas, and I think for that matter, the people across the country, that uh, uh, what you've described as uh, Abbott's will be done. Um, and and how how serious uh, as a constitutional crisis uh, would you say this present pass is? This is an enormous crisis. Uh, the, the number of states that are rallying to Texas's standard is considerable. In fact, Governor DeSantis just dispatched National Guard from Texas to uh, that same area to reinforce the forces of Texas. Um, any confrontation that happens between the federal government and the state government in which there is a, a real possibility of confrontation, armed confrontation, is of obviously uh, of enormous proportions. Constitutionally, uh, the president is in uh, deep water because Article 1, Section 10 of the Constitution very plainly vests in the states the independent war power to defend their states against invasion. Uh, certain academics have tried to construe the term invasion to mean only from a foreign power uh, that is an actual military of a foreign state. That is far, far from what the Founding Fathers intended. They used the term enemy when they refer to those uh, types of, of situations. In this, in this case, they use the term invasion. And in fact, James Madison very carefully explained his intention uh, in the Virginia ratifying convention for the constitution. He explained that in an instance where smugglers had come into Virginia with no actual criminality having taken place, but apparently, apparently, I use that word apparently, intent on criminality, that was enough for Madison to say Article 1, Section 10 would be invoked, and they were arrested by the militia and expelled from Virginia. Uh, that concept of an independent power to defend a state against illegal entry is very well established under the Invasion Clause and should be quite squarely what the Supreme Court does on this. If the Supreme Court doesn't do it, we will have a major confrontation between federal and state authorities uh, looming. Uh, if, if the court does act in the way it should, I would expect that that will be lessened. Although with Biden, anything's possible. Yeah. Let, let me come back to the Supreme Court in a moment, but just to stay with this idea, as I understand it, that uh, article that you've cited in the Constitution um, made plain the rights of the states to act in the face of an invasion when the federal government did not perform its constitutional responsibility. Is, right, is that right. an important caveat? Right, right. That's an important uh, caveat. If yeah. the federal government were pursuing under Article 4, Section 4 of the Constitution, the defense it's supposed to guarantee the states against insurrection, against rebellion, uh, it would not be an issue. But it is an issue precisely because the president as commander in chief has abnegated uh, the power of the commander in chief. He's not defending our borders, which is a fundamental function of the commander in chief. And he's also refusing to implement the immigration laws. So there is a, a void. There's a vacuum here into which very plainly Article 1, Section 10 applies. And Texas is rightfully Texas declared an invasion and is rightfully pursuing its powers under one set, Article 1, Section 10. Okay, so let's go back to the Supreme Court, because uh, you've alluded to the fact that there is some decision yet to be made, but they did make an interim ruling uh, with a narrow majority, uh, five to four, but two Republican appointees um, having voted uh, to give the majority to basically the Democrats on this case, uh, to Biden. Um, just lay out for us um, the state of play in the Supreme Court as you see it at the moment, Jonathan. 
So the Supreme Court vacated the Fifth uh, uh, Circuit's judgment, which was that the state had it right, that Texas had this power under Article 1, Section 10. They vacated that judgment without opinion. And uh, it was upon an appeal from the government uh, for, that, uh, for that to happen. And uh, they remanded the matter effectively to the Fifth Circuit, probably to develop a fuller record, I would hope. I would hope that that's what Comey Barrett is about here, not that she's actually acting against the Founding Fathers' intentions and eviscerating- She is, our, after all, an originalist, so-called. She right? is. So I, I don't know why she did that, why she made that a 5-4 decision. I think it's a mistake. I think Justice Thomas probably, he didn't articulate an opinion either, but- I believe that they have it right. They should have uh, upheld uh, Texas uh, during the pen, or excuse me, uh, the Fifth Circuit's decision during the pendency of that appeal. Ultimately, they will have to decide this question. I'm confident of that. And um, but in the interim, either I'm way, saying, if the if the Fifth Circuit uh, reverses its previous decision, um, they would so. still take it up. Do you think? I, I think so because it is a novel question. Uh, that really requires thorough elucidation, particularly in light of the fact that now we have a conflict between multiple states. Some 24, 25 states are aligning themselves with Texas against uh, the Biden administration. And the Biden administration appears unwilling to back down. Uh, and the question is, what will they do? They may do nothing, but with Biden, anything is possible. He's overtly threatened the governor of Texas with action against the state National Guard and the National Guard called up. In fact, he may federalize the National Guard and pit them against. This is Frank Hafting with the Secure Freedom Minute. An important new study exposes Team Biden's reckless disregard for reality in the existential war being waged by Sharia supremacists against our ally Israel and ultimately against us and the rest of Judeo-Christian civilization. It cites, for example, a claim by the faction Biden insists can be relied upon to run post-war Gaza and a new Palestinian state that last year, quote, more than 1,500 military operations against the Israeli occupation were led by the Fatah movement members and the Palestinian Authority security forces, unquote. When the president sanctioned four Israeli West Bank settlers yesterday for violence against Palestinians and their supporters, however, he made no mention of such operations by the very PA paramilitaries the U.S. is training and arming. By so doing, he is inviting more of those jihadist attacks and very possibly an October 7th style massacre in Judea and Samaria. This is Frank Afney. Welcome to Securing America with me, Frank Afney, the program that's a kind of owner's manual for protecting the country we love against all enemies, foreign and domestic, to the glory of God and his kingdom. We're going to talk about a number of critical issues in the course of today's program, as we often do. Uh, we're going to start with a conversation about the border, uh, the crisis. It's almost inadequate unto the day to think of it as simply a crisis. It is, in fact, a catastrophe. An invasion, yes, but something that is potentially a mortal threat to the nation itself, and one that is growing, it appears, uh, by leaps and bounds, rather than being attenuated, certainly by any action by the United States government under Joe Biden. We're going to speak with a man who is living close by that border, as well as uh, monitoring it very intensively uh, in his role as the uh, chief of national initiatives for the Texas Public Policy Foundation. But he has a wealth of experience, including as a lieutenant colonel uh, with a background in intelligence in the United States Army National Guard. He has also been a state assemblyman in California, which of course is a border state as well. His name is Chuck DeVore, and we are always thrilled to have the chance to visit with him, but especially at a time such as this, when we need to understand not just what is happening at the border, the truth of what is happening at the border, 
but why? And to take corrective actions before our nation and its people are even more seriously imperiled. That's my view of it. Let's hear from Chuck. Welcome back, sir. It's good to have you with us. Great to be with you, Frank. Hey, we were talking off air about a, um, a war game that you ran uh, several years ago at the Texas Public Policy Foundation to sort of suss out um, this issue of the border and the policy choices at both the state level, I think, and at the federal level, if I'm not mistaken. Um, give us a quick sort of precis of the exercise you did and, uh, right. and its importance. Well, the interesting thing about running war games or simulations, especially if they're done with a degree of discipline, I simply employed techniques and training that I learned in my 24 years in the U.S. Army. And we brought in a dozen individuals, including academics from Mexico City, people who were retired Border Patrol agents, retired DEA, people who had argued cases before the U.S. Supreme Court, et cetera. And so they were essentially playing these different major players, like the president of Mexico, the, the criminal drug cartels in Mexico, the Supreme Court, the governor of Texas, the governor of California, et cetera. And we issued the report about, uh, I think it was about five weeks before President Joe Biden was sworn in. So this was in December 2020. And we predicted the crisis that uh, would come about, this massive increase in illegal immigration, as well as a uh, substantial increase in uh, deadly drugs coming across killing Americans. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that- In, really in part, me, if I understand you, if, if, just to get this clarified, in part because- you had seen what happened when those very policies were being applied by the governor of California. Is that right? Well, it, it, we have a long history, Frank, right? We have a long history of what it takes to secure our border and how it becomes unsecure. Uh, so this is one of those things where you could see it coming, but we wanted to apply the discipline uh, of a war game over the period of several days, uh, which we then issued a report. I authored the report. We got it out in December 2020. But one of the things that struck us, uh, Frank, with recent reporting from Fox News, uh, Bill Malusian, uh, who's been reporting just the excellent reporting, right? And he has reported recent days about this shift in immigration, illegal immigration across the southern border, where uh, in Texas, it's uh, virtually come to a halt. Uh, and what's happened is the illegal immigration traffic has now gone to Arizona and California, uh, and overall, illegal immigration, at least compared to last month at this time, is down uh, about um, to, to about 45 percent of where it used to be. We were getting about 10,000 illegal crossings a day last month. It's down to 4,500. But the traffic is up uh, uh, higher than it was previously in California and Arizona. Uh, and it's collapsed in Texas. Now, we predicted all of this. In our war game, because we surmised, we, we thought that Governor Greg Abbott of Texas would take charge and eventually deploy his National Guard, deploy his, his state uh, public safety officers, the state troopers, uh, and would begin to turn away migrants at the Texas border. Uh, and that uh, also by applying pre pressure on the uh, Mexican government, uh, where it counts, uh, the Mexican government would see fit to divert the traffic to states that would welcome the immigrants, like California. Uh, and so we we outlined this in the report, uh, and lo and behold, here here now it it's worked. happened. So yeah. what a shock! So Chuck, I guess just to cut to the chase here, this is more or less common sense that if you actually yes. impede the flow, you'll right. get less flow, and in this right. case. Uh, it's not stopping uniformly across the southern right. border because the United States government as a whole is not doing it. And the Democratic government's governors of um, Arizona and California apparently right. see fit to keep it open. Chuck, this war game uh, phenomenon or, or uh, technique uh, could be helpful in a couple of other places, uh, might it not? And I wonder whether you thought... There's any indication that the Biden administration is employing it, for example, in this, uh, well, still uh, escalating crisis in the Red Sea with uh, the so-called Houthi rebels right. uh, backed by Iran and in turn backed by China? 
Yeah, Frank, this was the thesis of my article in Fox News a couple of days ago that the Biden administration is either not deploying war games or they're not doing them properly or they're ignoring the results because the results run counter to the ideology that says that we must appease Iran, that somehow the only way we're going to cause Iran to be a responsible regional player and, and give up their nuclear weapons program is by giving them everything they want. And that as a result, uh, as the Houthi uh, rebels continue to threaten shipping in the Red Sea, completely rerouting some 30% of the world's international trade, by the way, and making things more expensive, uh, disrupting supply chains. Uh, so from the Iranian standpoint, they're willing to uh, expend as many Houthi rebels as they need to, as many Hezbollah militias they need to, as many Hamas terrorists as they need to, to accomplish their aims, which is to establish regional hegemony, to eject the United States in shame and embarrassment. Uh, and so until you, in my view, uh, as backed up by war games I participated with a long time ago in the Pentagon, when you and I still work there, uh, it seems to me that unless you hold something directly at risk that really matters to Iran, like, for example, their naval assets, uh, they have a, a command control communications and intelligence ship that is directing the Houthi strikes right now in the Red Sea. Why is that ship still operational, for example? A good question. But, you know, you, you indicated that uh, they would, the Iranians would fight to the last Houthi or uh, other of their surrogates. It, uh, we had an interesting conversation uh, recently with Sam Faddis, former Central Intelligence Agency undercover operative, as you know, Chuck. Uh, and he says his sources are telling him that uh, the Biden administration is actually delaying the response to the attack in Jordan that killed three and wounded 38 or so others uh, of our personnel, um, so as to give the Iranians time to get their assets or their people out of harm's way. Yeah. Um, so it may not even be that they actually lose any of those. Right. <laughs> I yeah. mean, it, and, and Chuck, just, you know, applying common sense, uh, which you have in abundance, um, it's uh I, I think fair to say this is not likely to have the kind of decisive results uh, that we need it to have. Uh, and a war game might, uh, might shed light on that. Uh, I want to finish that thought with you on the other side of a very short break. We have to take a uh, momentarily. And I want to uh, then also turn to the issue of China behind all of this and uh, how it's playing. Stay tuned for that and more right after this. Welcome back. We're visiting with Lieutenant Colonel Chuck DeVore, a former member of the State Assembly of California, now the Chief of National Initiatives for the Texas Public Policy Foundation. A good friend of this program. We're always delighted to catch up with him. And Chuck, you were, you were making a larger point about, um, well, not only the need for common sense, but using techniques like wargaming to model uh, various uh, military approaches and uh, and operations. And it, it's not evident that the administration is using that technique, certainly with respect to this uh, problem of the Houthis uh, intercepting and otherwise upsetting maritime traffic through the Red Sea. Uh, but it, it also is evidently the case that um, what the administration is signaling by its failure to do much about this, anything meaningful about it, uh, to say nothing of, you know, the so-called Iranian militia operating in Iraq and against our forces in uh, Jordan and Syria. Um, it, it is being interpreted by our several enemies, all of them working more or less directly for Iran, as a green light to continue to uh, right. do so and, in fact, ramp things up, is it not? Right. And, and you know, this is really hits close to home when, when those... Uh, drones came in and, and killed the three service members. As you mentioned, it, it wounded a few dozen others, several of whom were from the California Army National Guard, the 40th Infantry Division, uh, of which I served the majority of my time in that, in that unit. 
And so, you know, the larger question, of course, is why do we have these forces there? The answer, of course, is to try to prevent a resurgence of the very virulent Sunni Islamist group known as ISIS, as well as to protect civilians from the rapacious designs of the Assad regime, which is fine. Okay, uh, I would argue you could probably empower Saudi Arabia or other regional allies to do that had Biden not offended them and called them a pariah state. Uh, but the even greater challenge is now that we've been hit, do we pull out in embarrassment uh, like we did in Afghanistan, which further erodes our international credibility? And in the meantime, we're expending uh, missiles to protect um, U.S. ships and international uh, cargo vessels uh, at a cost ratio of a, a, at least 10 to 1, if not 50 to 1, with some of these uh, uh, Houthi drones, uh, low-cost drones that are coming across. And we're expending these missiles that, uh, Frank, I'm, I'm terrified are going to be sorely needed in a future conflict with the People's Republic of China, uh, whether over Taiwan or over the Philippines or uh, Japan. Uh, we're not making these missiles quickly enough. They're highly effective. Uh, but we have not yet adapted our uh, method of, of defense and warfare to account for the proliferation of these low-cost platforms. We should be looking uh, much more at, at expanding or making more effective things like uh, Israel's Iron Dome or terminal defense systems like SeaWiz or you've seen with some of the, the German air defense systems that have been working so effectively in, in Ukraine. Uh, much cheaper, by the way, uh, to use against these uh, incoming uh, threats than uh, a missile that costs some $35 million a shot. No, you're exactly right, Chuck, of course. And, and the other component of this ought to be more effective suppression of those right. uh, well, systems Well, and that's, as of well. course, what we've been talking about, right? right. And, and I don't be believe we've done anything to suppress uh, the, the, the Houthis or Hezbollah or, or Hamas, because the people pulling the strings are Iran, which I think is very illuminating, Frank. You may have seen the supposed leak uh, from uh, the Biden intel team that, well, you know, the Islamic Republic of Iran doesn't really control the Houthis or Hezbollah or Hamas. And I'm thinking, oh, really? Okay. So you're trying to then lay the, the uh, rationale for why going directly after Iran makes no sense, because uh, they really have nothing to do with it. Okay, well, that's believable. Well, uh, you know, I, I must note in this connection, Chuck, as I know you're aware, um, uh, the guy who runs intelligence for the White House on the National Security Council staff is a former employee of a entity called UNRWA, uh, <laughs> yes. UN uh, Relief and Works Agency, that is in bed with Hamas and it's... Uh, it's Iranian right. friends. L let me ask you quickly, though. You mentioned China uh, and you know its um, operations and, and support for Iran, among other things, Chuck. Um, you had a very interesting piece the other day that I wanted just to get your thoughts on at the moment uh, about whether the weakness that is evident in some aspects of uh, particularly the economic and you know sort of uh, social side of uh, China at the moment uh, might be um, something that actually spares us the kind of aggression that China seems to have in mind under right. Xi Jinping, or perhaps becomes a new pretext for it. Your thoughts? Yeah, it's really hard to tell right now because China has become even more opaque than it used to be, um, certainly during its years of rapid economic growth. They've, the Chinese government has essentially made it impossible to do, for example, honest accounting or to uh, take any of the numbers that come out, any of the economic numbers seriously. A lot of the economic numbers, by the way, have just been cut off. They, they don't want to report anything. And so uh, likely this is happening because Xi Jinping, the paramount leader, uh, is preventing some of the uh, more uh, traditional aspects of capitalism. Uh, you know, everything now has to be approved through the Chinese Communist Party. This may just be because he's, uh, you know, not a terribly brilliant ideologue and he wants total control, or maybe they're shifting to a war economy. And if you do that, of course, uh, standards of living must be sacrificed as you begin to build more and more ships. As we've talked about on your program before, what is it now that the Chinese have a shipbuilding capacity, something like 250 times that of the United States? Now, we still have an overall advantage in tonnage afloat, 
but the Chinese war vessels are much younger. They have, uh, in many cases, newer technology, uh, and they're, they're producing them, they're launching them at an alarming rate. Uh, and eventually, they may catch up. Now, so the question becomes, are they really on the path to collapse like um, many people did not see with the Soviet Union and its terminal years where you had a succession of leaders and eventually they just ran out of steam and, and broke apart? Uh, or is this something more, more sinister? Uh, are we seeing really the, the beginnings of preparation for uh, a sustained and prolonged conflict? And again, it's hard to tell because uh, our uh, human intelligence assets are, are not what they should be. Uh, they haven't been for decades. Uh, and China has uh, done a really good job in basically making itself opaque to the outside world. Chuck, this does call to mind an important observation, I think, about what historically tyrants have done when they find themselves in this kind of uh, extreme circumstance. They seize upon a foreign boogeyman or manufactured crisis overseas to justify both domestic repression and uh, hopefully create a kind of rallying around the flag right. uh, phenomenon. Um, could that be uh, what G intends here? And uh, far from allaying uh, the concerns that we have, uh, it may be compounding them. And should we be responding by intensifying his problems at home with yeah, the I mean, this, the party, if possible. Right. This is the huge question, right? I mean, certainly Japan has gotten the memo, and you see them rapidly uh, you know, recapitalizing their military. You see the Philippines also uh, understanding the nature of the threat and, and uh, taking uh, prudent measures to, to meet it and defend their sovereignty, uh, even Vietnam. And so the question is, with the U.S., uh, are we going to be properly focused? Uh, are we going to have a president that's going to come to the American people and explain things clearly, uh, such as that uh, the justification for additional measures taken uh, for our defense budget might be justified. And, and I don't see that happening right now. Not right now. Uh, we hope maybe in November. Chuck, we'll have to leave it at that for the moment. Thank you so much for your time today. Come back to us with uh, updates, if you would, on all of I this. Do. And then, Tim, keep up the good work at the Texas Public Policy Foundation. Stay tuned, folks. We'll be right back with more right after this.